0: So, very briefly, we are going to get into a time machine to 2017. Okay. This show does not exist. There are three top charting songs, all by Justin Bieber Let Me Love You, I'm the One, and Despacito in reverse (laughs) order of popularity. This first Nenea book, the first two Nenea books are going to come out, Mm -hmm. and then they're going to come out again in 2019. What happened between 2017 and 2019 to Justin Bieber that caused a rip in the universe that gave us these books?
1: Oh my God. I, I don't know, but I just have to leave it with a question that he invited me to ask. What do you mean?
0: What do I mean? He marries Haley, now you know, Haley, me, Baldwin, Bieber. There's one eyeball on the national dollar bill and one eye out for Selena, and that's the world that gave us these books. Oh, my God. What a moment
1: in time. Welcome, everyone, to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary.
0: I'm still Allison. I am not married to Justin Bieber at this time. But you've thought about it, maybe. Hard to say. I have not. You have, <laughs> have not, not thought considered.
1: about it. Um, okay, that's, I think that's actually a sign of good health, so I'm proud of you. I am fascinated by a recent TikTok I just told you about that where someone was like, due to Hillsong, Haley was originally intended to marry Chris Pratt and then ends up with Justin Bieber.
0: We have been in kind of a fascinating place because typically we're thinking about multiple time periods of, you know, years past when you read these books. Categorically, it used to be the 1990s and some other period, like 1774. Now we're in 2017 and 1942. And if I may, I don't want to be in either of those years.
1: I will hard pass on both of those times. Yeah. I mean, I was still in grad school in 2017. No yes. thanks. Don't want to don't take me back,
0: please. The opening lines which we are just going to kind of probably talk in passing of the additional Nanea supplemental, which is that you are following her footprints in the sand. I started that book and it said, "Imagine you are in 1942. Reader, I closed the book. <laughs> I you had don't, to. I sincerely was not in a mood to imagine that. And so I did actually close the book physically. I came back to it. It was a choose your own adventure. But for me, what felt right was not taking the adventure.
1: I think you have to you have to be kind to yourself in those moments. And I think you made the right call. It's kind of like with the recent historical dolls of like, are you ready to go to the headspace of like why 2K might be real? Maybe not. And that's okay. That's not a judgment.
0: I'm fascinated by a lot of the ways that people are sort of resistant to the 90s being history because in the 90s, I think we were very keen on making the 1970s history because that felt really comfortable, right? That was kind of like Mm. a radical moment, and it felt really comfortable to have that be historical and not be like how life should be. I think that we're stuck in this kind of nostalgia Rube Goldberg machine that now I'm afraid we're never going to get out of, which is like the 90s, not wanting that to be historical or not feeling like we should put that in the past, but also endless nostalgia, which makes us remember it is historical.
1: Wow. Uh, Lots to think of with that. Yeah, I think I share your view. I also remember um, particularly less the 70s, but more the 60s being um, something that we were nostalgic for in the 90s and thinking about our favorite miniseries, the 60s. Still iconic, still can't find it, but regardless, someday Julia Stiles and I will be together again. But I agree with you. I think that in hard times, some people's response is to think, romantically about an imagined past that perhaps never existed i mean that's in many ways the story of american history right like the lost cause like all of these things that people romanticize even now people romanticizing the 1920s in the 2020s and all but i think the key to that is like purposefully like misremembering or erasing problems of those eras so when people are nostalgic for the 90s you know i'm seeing a lot of things like i'm still amazed that friends is as popular now as it is When living single is the better show and like I'm just gonna say that but you know when people think about the 90s no one's talking about how actually homophobic the 90s were and maybe that's because it's too bleak to remember that things are getting more homophobic now or transphobic as well I don't know it's just is it because we can't sit with the present? we can't accept it it's too overwhelming is that why we're going back in this nostalgic way?
0: Well, I think there's often at least enough kind of like base level awareness. There was a TikTok where a woman said, like, I wish I could live in the 1940s. And she obviously got a lot of pushback for that. And then she did what you do on the Internet, which is she doubled down and she said, let me explain more. And she basically said she wanted to have like certain aspects of her life now, but have the setting of the 1940s, which I I sort of, you know, give her credit on some level for like trying to explain herself because she said outright that she doesn't accept right the anti-Semitism of the period that she doesn't accept all of these things. But what she was actually talking about was wanting to live in a movie set of the 1940s. She has no interest in being in the 1940s in that mentality in that world. Shouldn't have made the video, right? Probably, but When she actually explained herself, I think that's part of what American Girl used to do really well in some ways, which was give you a setting for imagining that your doll is in the 1700s and you can kind of choose to be part of that or not. The bluntness of, you know, come with Nenea and be in 1942, it just was a no. It just was an immediate no. Like, I don't want to live in that moment. I know too much about what is going on. I don't even want to have the clothing. Of that moment. And that's not hate on anyone who chooses to wear apparel from that era. I was like, I don't want to be there. I'm okay.
1: I think that's the right response, though. I mean, I I don't think anyone, if they were acquainted with the reality of day-to-day life in the past, would be like, yeah, take me back. Like, I want to live in the Middle Ages, or I want to live in ancient Rome, or I want to live any of these times. I mean, frankly, I'll be real. I don't want to live pre-penicillin. No, thank you. Like, I don't want to live pre-indoor bathroom call me a diva, call me what you will. But I mean, that's the creature comforts that I am accustomed to, but, you know, and we wouldn't be comfortable in the past because we know the present. So we would always feel out of place. So I think that leads us to a place of like, what is history doing for some people who love it? And I think for me, it's a way of thinking. And for you, like it helps us understand the world we're in now and how we fit into it, how it's organized like long-standing trends, all this kinds of stuff. And sure, we have things that we are interested in, but it's not a source of fantasy for us. It's not an escape. I don't read it like I would read a romance novel, which I've started reading, so no shade to romance novels. But it's not a place I go to for an imagined version of something that will be comforting or like a cozy mystery book or like Murder, She Wrote. It's, you know, a way of thinking about the world. So I do think, you know, it's probably a good sign if you're not like, take me back to the 1940s. Also fascinating, that woman doubled down on it. I would think, you know, on the internet, at least if somebody comes through, you have to be like, huh, let me like take a moment and see what is, you know, causing all of this. Or like, let me sit with this.
0: I think what's hard too, is you don't want to assume that the present is better on all counts, right? I think that's a fallacy to assume that everything about the present is necessary. You know, a a progression narrative from how something else used to be. But I've been doing a lot of reflecting on like how strongly I felt and still feel about Molly as a character Mm. and why I feel so differently about this character. And I do think part of it is the books that I read that I purchased right to like engage in this at this time. They are packaged really almost like YA two YA novels versus a series of six books designed to you know have a sort of arc over time. And I'm not trying to nitpick on like, so they should have divided this many pages by this. But I felt very much like we were with this character over less than a year, whereas we were with Molly for much longer. And we kind of got to like experience with Molly, wow, the war really is changing things. And there's something about the abruptness of what Nenea encounters starting in November and December 1941. Like her world is never the same. And I think that world building is really smart and super well done. I just felt very clearly like... There is something campy, no pun intended, about the way we get D-Day inserted into Molly's books. I just kind of felt with dread, like, okay, we're heading towards Midway. How is Midway going to be integrated into the second Nenea book? And then I felt so sad we never get to get past that. Like, that's part of my frustration with Be Forever. We didn't really get anywhere past that. We ended with that. Yeah. In
1: some ways, it's like... The name be forever in some ways implies or like hints at what you're going to get, which is a story with no change over time. It's like Nenea is frozen in resin. We never get to see how she navigates the full arc of the war, as you're saying. She is the person pretty much that we meet almost immediately in the book. Like Pearl Harbor happens really early in the first book, my version of it. And, you know, she stays in that place of navigating the war and having the very real anxiety that I think is communicated really well that a kid would have of being in this really uncertain time. But I think with Molly, like you're saying, we get this whole arc with her where it feels really earned. So by the end of the book, we've seen her grow and change and live over just like a bigger stretch of time. So when dad comes home, it's like, I think that packs more of a wallop because you're like, wow, like, I know Mm -hmm. what that means. Whereas spoiler alert, we're not here when David, her brother, comes back from the war, and like we we don't even really see him leave. Like we we're basically like really scared that he's going to enlist, and then he does. Spoiler alert. But yeah, it's just it's kind of like we meet someone and we're not with them long enough to be that invested, I guess.
0: No, and before we talk about you know this book in depth, is there anything of our present that you wanted to talk about? Sure. So I mean, just in terms of.
1: I will say I'm in a bit of a scattered mood, I was telling you off air. So Anna and I have been looking for a house for like literally three years. We just had an offer accepted on a house. And now like as part of it, we have to move pretty quickly, I think. So I'm going to be in the process of preparing to move over the next like month or so. So if anyone out there has tips on like, first time home buyer, like, you know, moving, doing house projects, things you wish you hadn't done, things you wish you had, like, hit me up. I'm truly like a babe in the woods. I don't know what I'm doing. And this house is from the late 60s. So it's like our series. Allison. I has shag carpeting in the finished basement, like yes. lots of projects ahead of me. So that's been kind of rocking my world. And also just increasingly feeling like money is just a thought experiment. I'm just writing checks. I don't even know what's happening yeah. anymore. <laughs> But in the midst of all this, I have been watching Insecure, which I know ended a long time ago or feels like it, but it's very real to me right now. And I'm literally like said to someone at work who inspired me to start watching it, like no spoilers. And she was like, this show ended like literally years ago at this point. But that has been really interesting. I really am loving it. I think it's very well done, but... That's kind of where I'm at. I did want to try to watch Pearl Harbor with Ben Affleck, but it didn't happen for me mostly because I couldn't bring myself to do it. You know, make judgments as you will, but where are you at in pop culture, in your life? What's up?
0: We also have been told that the film Midway is really good and that if people don't want to watch Pearl Harbor, that they can watch that. So we'll kind of give a plug there that it has more historical accuracies. So I'm only taking in like super highbrow content. I love Elizabeth Banks and she directed a film called Cocaine Bear, (laughs) which I wanted to see because as you know, like Kirstens around the world, like we're curious. We wanna have these encounters with bears as needed. It was not a great representation of federal employees or park rangers specifically, but it was campy and I appreciate that. So it is based on a true story about a bear who comes into contact with bag after bag of cocaine, which is dropped Uh in a forest in Georgia. And part of what I found fascinating about it is it was really kind of an unexpected film for now because I feel like a lot of studios aren't taking a ton of chances, right, on things Mm. that maybe wouldn't do super well. And they had to spend a ton of money on this black bear that is attacking people. And I liked it. Like, I'm not going to say that it should get Oscars, but I think it was very well done. I liked the actors. Carrie Russell is in it. She does a wonderful job. She plays a mom. So, yeah. So, I mean, I could kind of see some American girl worlds where they like completely jump the shark, so to speak. And we have like those types of narratives for future characters. So, you know, nine out of 10. Oh my God, really? Nine out of
1: 10? Can you compare it to like, what style comedy is it? Like, what (laughs) is it? Is there another movie that you're like, it kind of feels like this movie?
0: I think part of why I liked it is it reminded me of funny movies that I loved in the early to mid 2000s. I was a person who saw Wedding Crashers in theaters, bought it as soon as it came out on DVD and watched it over and over. And I don't tend to rewatch a lot of things. I like films that are a little bit basic and funny, and I don't like superhero content. It just okay. is not for me. I won't see it. I won't dive into that universe. And I don't think this kind of film has been as popular. Conversely, I watched the J-Lo film that features her in a rom-com. Oh, Very much yeah. could have been made 15, that? 20, 25 years ago. Shotgun Wedding. I don't say I don't recommend it, but it's like it could have been made years ago. Like it reminded me of something that came out of the early 2000s in a less positive way because I didn't see a ton of like character evolution or anything interesting. I liked the audacity of I'm going to make a film about this cocaine. Great. Beer.
1: I mean, it seems like fun. Wait, what's that on? Where can I watch that? It's in theaters. So oh, I have to as go to Harry Styles says, like it's a movie. It's a movie. Wow. <laughs> it's a movie. <laughs> I haven't been to a movie theater since before the pandemic. I don't know how to feel about that, but I'm, you know, I'm just not there yet. So I hope it comes to streaming because I would watch that. I think comedy, like you're saying, is much harder than drama. And I wish it was recognized by the Oscars, but it's not. I mean, some of it's unintentional comedy, I'm guessing, but I haven't seen a lot of those movies either. I really wish Melissa McCarthy would make more movies immediately because I will watch anything she's in. That's like the person who makes the like I will watch Spy anytime. Or that movie she made with um, Sandra Bullock, The Heat. To me, like, that's hilarious. Like, I love that movie. So if it's like that, I will watch. I mean, I'll probably watch it anyway, but that sounds good.
0: I respect that J.Lo refuses to play a character and will basically only play a slightly varied version of herself, which is what she plays in this film. And she does something that only a certain class of actor can pull off, which is force you over and over to believe that she is wearing something heinous when it is, in (laughs) fact, a beautiful piece of clothing custom designed for her body. And that is what you are supposed to believe about her wedding dress in this film. I can't say it's good. I can't even really say it's that good. But that's not Cocaine
1: Bear. That's That's not wedding. what that is. Also, she does this thing in movies where she's like, I'm so, like, adorkable. Like, nobody gets me. Yeah. <laughs> like, remember the wedding date with Matthew McConaughey where she's like, I just play, like, bingo or um, dominoes with my parents in a church basement. Like, I don't know. Like, I have no social life. Like, I'm just adorkable. I did like the one, though, she made with um, Leah Remini, where Leah Remini plays her best friend. Again, huge stretch from life, but I don't even remember the title, but it hit the spot. And also Hustlers is excellent. I wish she would do more of that kind of content. Never forget that I did stream it on Amazon Prime (laughs) on my parents' account, and I forgot I was logged in as them because I had gone in to fix something for them. Literally got an uncomfortable text from my mom one night that was like, hi, Mimi, um we just got a notification that someone rented something called hustlers um we just want to make sure we're not being hacked and i had to be like okay that was me but it's also not a bad thing it's it's an actual movie no it's nothing bad like and i like i overcorrected and was like here's the imdb page like i'm sorry like this is real <laughs> i don't know it was crazy but
0: anyway it was worth it Speaking of worth it, shall we do Ninea book two? Like, is it time? Let's get into it. So we are we are back with Kirby Larson, um, again, author of Biddy Baby the Brave, which is something I wish that I had on my CV. And we are here to talk about Hula for the Homefront, which, important for you to know, I have a just slightly different version book than Mary's, so we're going to talk a little bit about those differences. I have illustrations, and Mary does not. That's correct, right? It
1: is. I mean, I feel like you're kind of bragging, but yeah, that's the case. <laughs>
0: Well, we'll talk about why I do think it actually matters, but I'll just give us that thumbnail sketch from the publisher. Everything has changed since the war started. Nenea had hoped that going back to school would make life seem normal again, but it hasn't. There are still curfews and blackouts and constant reminders of war. Nanea's dear friend Donna had to leave Hawaii, and Nenea's big brother won't stop talking about joining the army. She can't bear the thought of him being far from home and in danger. In the swirl of changes, Nanea turns to hula. Dancing makes her feel better, and soon she learns how much it lifts the spirits of the soldiers too. When a surprising hula partner boosts everyone's morale, Nanea gets a big idea.
1: Wow! And what was the big idea?
0: The big idea is that she is going to dance alongside her dog, Melee. Has there ever been a more apt name for a pet in this series than Melee?
1: I mean, truly not, and not to paraphrase Tyga's new girlfriend, but Melee was a dog, <laughs> Nene was a hula dancer. Can it be any more obvious? Yeah,
0: he's dating Avril Levine. In case people don't know, which, which I is- can't
1: fathom. Like, if you think about that star chart, it's like Tyga was with Kylie, who he was also with Black China, who was with Rob, and then Rob is related to Brody Jenner, who also took Avril Levine as his date to Kim's wedding to Kanye. So it's really like there's a lot happening with that. Anyway, <laughs> sorry.
0: There is a lot <laughs> happening. No, and I think that's a beautiful point because this book is also very insular. We really stay very close to the same group of people, right? Even though Donna has gone away, Donna was sent back to the mainland because she is considered non-essential to the U.S. government. Although, as we hear again and again, very essential to Nanea and her yes. health, we really stick very tight to Nanea's parents, grandparents, to her brother, to a small number of people such as the family, including the man they call Uncle Fudge. We don't really get like a huge cast of characters here. And we also focus very closely on this hula arc, right? This idea that she is going to do these hula performances, not unlike Molly being Miss Victory. And we're also going to have this whole subplot where she's very afraid about her dog. Like what is making her anxious about the dog?
1: Lots going on with that. But essentially the arc of the book is like (laughs) there are some new war related programs that she both wants to engage in support, but is also afraid for how it will affect her life so she's afraid for her brother um, to enroll to enlist in the military and there's like that's an ongoing source of anxiety she also starts a group called the honolulu helpers where they're going to do different ad hoc things to support the war effort but she goes to school one day and one of her classmates um, reveals that his dog tarzan this is on page 51 will be enlisting, which, you know, is kind of a shock. Like, dogs can enlist, question mark, and he will be enlisting in a program called Dogs for Defense. And Nenea, from that point, is like, I cannot lose melee. Like, I've already lost Donna, you know, lots, a lot of loss in my life, and I can't lose my beautiful dog to the war effort. So she's at war with herself from that point forward about, is it selfish to not want to give melee to the war effort? And that's a huge problem. That's a huge source of of tension.
0: It is not selfish. And I think there is a fascinating moment where it doesn't feel too contrived. She has this inner conflict about the fact that she feels as though losing Melee would be a sacrifice, but other people have sacrificed a lot more. And I thought that felt really authentic Mm -hmm. to being a child or really being at anywhere in your life and trying to think about proportionality and scale of tragedy. She's still going through something, right? Like she is not on the same Level as people who have, you know, lost a parent or lost someone, you know, a loved one on the USS Arizona. But she's going through something. And I appreciate that the adults acknowledge that. And one of the kind of central conflicts, this did kind of have rom-con tendencies. The entire time she's afraid that military personnel who know her family will just take melee, that that this dog will essentially be conscripted and she won't have a choice. And a lot of this book is about her trying to contrive ways to prove that her dog is useful without having to do that. This is how I know I am a cat person because, famously, there were cats involved in Cold War programs and one of the first cats to be successfully trained in espionage was sent overseas and immediately ran in front of traffic. You cannot... Make cats participate in these kinds of state sanctioned Mm -hmm. programs, they're not going to do it. I don't know if we
1: want to, if here's where we want to get into this, but we both, independent of one another, got really deep in like dogs (laughs) during wartime programs because that is kind of at the center of this book. Is like she basically thinks for the entire book that dogs for defense is the only program going. And then it turns out at the end that she creates her own program which she calls Operation Melee Medicine to bring her hula dancing dog to military hospitals to entertain the troops, which obviously goes a long way in terms of like quality of life, et cetera. Like, you know, it's a big hit with the troops. So we got into it and like, what did we find when it comes to dogs in World War II, dogs in combat?
0: What did you surface So I got interested in this idea of the dog performing a hula in the first place because of a kind of casual part of this book where Nenea talks about the fact that she's not sure if it's actually respectful that the dog would be performing alongside her. And whether it actually is respectful, I leave up to the advisory board that you know, okayed this book. But I started looking for places in the newspaper, in Honolulu papers, where they talked about hula shows and where they would have talked about dogs. And I found pretty quickly that there actually was a person that performed with a dog. Uh, something pretty like essential and different about this book. We have a sense because it's American Girl, I think that as a 10-year-old, like she is responsible for USO shows, for drives, for all of these things. When a lot of that work, including the actual Honolulu-based you know service group, that was college students. And most of the USO performers were adults and women. And I think we should talk about why that might be important. Mm-hmm. But it was a grown man who actually uh, had this dog that was part of his routine. So I have this advertisement from the right time period, from April of 1942. And they talk about a relief show and a relief effort. And he does actually have a hula dog. Now, whether that was intended to be respectful and whether he was Hawaiian and, you know, doing a, a performance that was really like part of his culture, I'm not sure. But it did actually happen that dogs did hula.
1: That's really interesting because I was kind of wondering reading it, like, is this truly the first, like, is Nenea inventing something brand new or is this sort of happening elsewhere? Does this predate the war that people are having their dogs um, perform doing the hula? Also, like Melee, like the most relatable part of this book for me was that the dog is motivated to learn how to hula because it receives cookies. And I am also motivated that way. So that felt relatable. Um, I got really into looking at dogs during World War II, and I found things that were both charming and disturbing. So I'll start with some charming information. We both probably came across Smokey the Terrier. The most memorialized dog of World War II. And Smokey the Terrier was found on the island of New Guinea by some US servicemen and basically sold to a man named Bill, an American, for $6.44. He then proceeds to go through the war with this man, like literally traveling in his backpack. He weighed like four pounds. And he was part of air raids. He was part of air missions. At one point, they strapped a telegraph wire to his collar and forced him through a pipe that was like over 100 feet long because they needed to run this wire. And Bill was like, My dog can do that. Like, none of us can fit in the pipe, but like, this dog can. And then he was like, This dog saved my life. Like, at one point, he was like, This dog saved my life. Like, I was standing somewhere. And melee like dragged me like 10 feet to the left and a bomb landed and killed everyone else who was there, but me. which leads to the question, does Smokey only care about Bill or he was like, these other guys, like not my problem, Bill, you're my ride or die. Get out of here. Hmm. I don't know. But after the war, Bill basically takes Smokey on the road. They go on early television shows together doing dog tricks. Then, you know, spoiler alert. Smoky dies suddenly in 1957, which is sad. But also, um, this dog has memorials literally around the world. Like, there's a memorial to Smoky on Hawaii, in Australia, in Ohio, where Bill was from, many places. And Bill wrote a book about Smoky, which you can go read, and also claims that, one, Smoky is the first pet therapy dog, which is debatable, and two that um, because he was a Yorkie and so public, he popularized Yorkies in the United States as pets. You know, wild claims. I'm not sure if they're real or not. But then we have a little something called Dogs for Defense, which I think we both looked into. What are your thoughts
0: on that
1: program?
0: So we mentioned this a bit casually with our previous book because this is heavily foreshadowed, right, that her dog is going to become part of this war effort. And it was also something that came up when we talked a bit about Bennett during World War II. I should say, first of all, I'm joking that cats would never be part of a war effort. Cats have been very useful historically on ships and have even been given identification cards by the U.S. government as part of their service on ships. Um, They can't be contained. So it's kind of like a rogue mission program. That said, uh, what was kind of interesting to me about this aspect was how hyper aware this character was in just kind of like it's saturating her life that the war could take anything at any time. Mm-hmm. Like what I found really interesting about this is she's a civilian, right? Mm-hmm. If you are in the U.S. military in 1942, you know what's going on. If you're training a dog, you're training a dog for the war effort. What I found really kind of, you know, fascinating about this book is we have a 10-year-old girl, right, who's like just turned 10, who is thinking all the time about the various ways in which her pet could be not just useful but taken, mm. right? We learn about how she's wearing a gas mask. We learn about kind of the way that they incorporate the ID carrying. She makes a purse so that it's easier for folks to do that. But the fact that this thing that she loves, right, it's kind of more of a known narrative that her brother could be taken away. But the fact that she has these few encounters directly with military personnel and then thinks they may want to take my dog really shows you just how much this family is aware of the war because they live in a militarized military state. I think there's something hugely different about Asking people, right, to train pets and to train animals for war and having a child think that her beloved pet might be taken away. What I ended up reading was an exhibit by the military. So it was written by a military historian about the fact that a lot of dogs really struggle to acclimate into life. And obviously, Nanea wouldn't have known that yet, but that sense that after a dog has been through war, it basically needs to adapt to civilian life again, and that certain breeds had a harder time than other breeds, mm. and the military ended up relying on a smaller subset of certain kinds of breeds of dog to achieve certain missions, and learned that many of them overall really just couldn't go back to the life they had before. Mm.
1: Yeah, that was interesting. Like, it was interesting because they early on decided that dogs could be useful in the war effort. And it's a group, I think, of like dog trainers that sort of proposed this program. And they're like, look, we could get dogs volunteered and we could all train them in common. And that immediately is a problem because the trainers aren't all doing the same level of training. And originally they are like, okay, these dogs are going to be on guard duty. Like, they're just going to alert us if we see any like Japanese or German enemy military, like on our shores, So they're working with the Coast Guard, etc. Then they're like, well, we could make dogs messengers. And that sort of goes okay. Then they're like, we're going to make dogs bomb sniffing dogs. That does not go well because the dogs can't yep. figure out what's going on. It's a training issue. And then there's this crazy experiment on what's called Cat Island, ironically off Mississippi, which the army rents for this purpose, where this guy was like, I'm going to train dogs to kill without human involvement. So we won't have to risk human lives. We're just going to send these dogs in. They're going to take a bunch of people out. And that does not go well. But it's just sort of wild to me that the Army was willing to propose that because a major issue in researching pet therapy now, which I kind of read around a little bit in, is like the idea of animals, animal rights, which does not come into this conversation in World War II. No one's really thinking like, is this going to be healthy for dogs to go through combat and then return to civilian life, which, as you noted, many of them could not. Um, And that's actually a huge part of the conversation now because pet therapy has a longer history than World War II. Like it goes back to early mental hospitals like the York retreat in 1792, which had like occupational therapy. You could care for animals as a occupational form of like Capturing your attention and making you, like, the way that you can care for something can make you value yourself. And Florence Nightingale actually was into birds as pets, Allison, I learned. As she wrote in 1869, a pet bird in a cage is sometimes the only pleasure of an invalid confined for years to the same room. If he can feed and clean the animal himself, he ought always to be encouraged to do so. Would a pet bird bring you peace? I don't know. Yes. Yes? You're a bird person?
0: Well, I have a bird feeder now, which is like how I entertain my cat a lot of the time. And he absolutely loves it. I can actually see like five birds right now because they are all active out on my feeder. Do I want them in the home? Don't. Okay, that's fair. I'm happy with them on the other side of the glass. I'm with you. What did you make? And I think part of how I'm seeing this through the prism is we were very fortunate back when we covered Molly to talk about a person who recreated Miss Victory shows in the present, Mm -hmm. right? Like up until COVID, she was doing that kind of work. That is our episode way back with someone called Jane Mix. I kept thinking, and part of why I turned to newspapers was – This girl who's nine or 10 years old seems to be doing a lot of performing for adult men. And she actually receives a letter from a serviceman who calls himself Tennessee. And that's where she gets this idea that melee can be this kind of support because he says, you know, this has made me feel better than any medicine. Right. Like this. This is like melee medicine for me when i found the article or the clipping about and it recurs over and over so i know it wasn't a, a one off of the hula dog the title says the biggest show of the year navy relief benefit artists and entertainers right underneath that it says girls 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 yes. i don't think this is girls in the way of american girl i think the implication is that this is entertainment for in a you know compulsory heteronormative way for servicemen right. Which kind of made me wonder why the parents are like, oh, we definitely want our nine-year-olds doing this. No, I'm being serious. Yeah. Like it kind of it asked it raised some questions for me. And I'm not trying to, you know, put something out there that isn't in these books. It did just make me think about Molly is performing in her community for her community as part of the Miss Victory. And there is a USO element in the books. This is straight up like she's on a circuit with the dog as part of a USO gig. Right. And notably, her parents are often
1: never present when that's happening because they're working or teaching first aid classes or what have you. So she's with her grandmother sometimes or her brother will like drop her off. But that was striking to me too. In, In large part, the book calls this to your attention because one of the performances, she gets to wear a dress that signals that she's growing up. And it's a hula costume that Is worn by, you know, not little girls. It's something that you grow into. So they point you to the fact that she's growing up, but obviously, you know, still a girl. And I think most of the popular representation of like war bond campaigns or entertaining servicemen in World War II, there is a highly sexualized element to those performances. If you look back at historic photos or even like the movie Stage Door Canteen or all this other stuff, So it is kind of striking that no one is sort of like, hey, just like FYI, like you're going to be staying with me the whole time. And there's also like notes that she's having to change into her costume, like at the hospital. And it's just sort of like, where is the sense of like privacy? Where is the sense of like an adult just kind of being there? Just sort of like, hey, we assume everyone here has like the best of intention is going to treat Nenea with respect, but we're just going to be here as like an adult in her life who's going to be keeping an eye on the situation. Like, if anything, like, I don't really see that happening in the book.
0: No, and I think what we know based on sort of, you know, these are unequal relationships, right? And not to overstate it, but I found an article from right around the same time as the one with the hula dog. And um, there is, like, a kind of, like, fascination with the other, right? Kind of, like, this is different Mm -hmm. from what, like, the, quote, boys saw back home, but they are men. They are adults, you know? So this article says – Different from wiggly shows back home. It was swell. Sure different from the wiggly shows at home. The hula is a pretty dance when done right. These were remarks heard by Army boys after the Hawaiian program presented um, with the Hawaiian troop Monday at the social settlement. The hour's entertainment, which was thoroughly enjoyed by the boys, consisted of hulas, Hawaiian music and songs, and historical comments on Hawaii. It was arranged by the USO. And you can find articles like these all over the Honolulu papers. I think that there is something here about sort of like, we need to entertain, we're calling them boys, but they are men. Like we need to entertain these adults. And just this week, completely by chance, USA Today came out with an article about a new and really in-depth. Uh, Hawaiian feature that is done to tell the story about indigenous Hawaii, this new hula program that we can link to. And it's all about how it's really meant to tell the story of the displaced queen and imperialism. I would guess that is not the story that is going to be told when Nenea is being asked to do it. But there is something, I think, looking back from a perspective about having a child perform for adults that I think should pretty much always raise some questions. Yeah, I think so.
1: I think definitely so. I mean, it kind of it made me think about like Shirley Temple, too, because there's movies that she's in that are set during the war or like wartime, where she's also the only child amongst all these servicemen who are like charmed by her and she's entertaining them like Good Ship Lollipop. If you know the scene of that movie, it's like her on a bus with all these Mm -hmm. servicemen. And you're also kind of like, this is weird like this just feels uncomfortable it would not happen today and i think to your point like they're literally the places that have been requisitioned by the military were former sites of leisure where presumably white americans from the mainland are coming out to vacation and in a lot of cases like put on another culture or like vacation in another culture of which they are not a part and you know take in hula shows and this and that and now literally it's like where servicemen go for recreation and rest And these performances are happening, but to me, it seems like the stakes have completely changed. So to have just a child there with her dog is, you know, it it calls more attention to itself, I think.
0: I was struck by the ending of the book and the very last line that we're left with, where she says, let's dance hula dog. And they did, which I think was, you know, it kind of leaves us wondering, of course, like I think if these books are meant to pique curiosity I kind of know what happens between 1942 and 1945. Like, I have some sense if it's meant to get you to ask questions about what's going to go on next, it certainly does that. But we have this kind of rapid fire window from the lead up to the attack on Pearl Harbor The attack, we then have kind of like a quiet winter, this kind of like growing sense of dread, all leading up to her brother's 18th birthday, his decision to enlist. And Midway is really central here, but in national context, D-Day would have been just as, if not more important, like it was for Molly. When the family finds out that the Battle of Midway has taken place and that the U.S. soldiers are, sorry, seamen are victorious, they say, we won the Battle of Midway. This calls for pancakes. Which I think is kind of like a classic AG moment, which is like trying to add something normal into a wartime scene. What kept going back and forth in my mind is like there's so much talk about deprivation and sacrifice, but there's also like not... There's also not at the same time, right? I think because they own a grocery store, they're very fortunate. They're able right. to kind of celebrate this battle with the pancakes. Or maybe that is a sign of deprivation in their family. I'm not sure. Like, to me, that's a great dinner. Just yes. kind of a curious ending, I think, all around. I think it.
1: I think it's a weird ending because, as you're saying, it's not like the war is wrapping up. It's like it's very much amping up and it's going to keep going for years. and there's no like way to butt in the end of this story in a way that will fill you with resolution that like everyone's going to be okay because we don't know and so how do you i think the big like question of this book is how do you sit with discomfort because i think throughout this book there's so much uncertainty in her life and in the life of the family like there's um some newspaper interviews around different anniversaries of pearl harbor in which People who were children at the time living there kind of reflect on what it was like. And one of the main things a lot of them say is we thought that the Japanese were coming right back. We thought there was going to be a land invasion. That's why they're carrying the gas masks. Like so imagine living in peril like every day a new surprise attack could happen. I'm sure like your whole life is rife with anxiety. And to me, like my favorite quote in the book or moment is about halfway through the book. She's dancing the hula after having real anxiety about already about David enlisting. And then after having coming home from school on page 60, after learning about dogs for defense and wondering like, am I going to lose melee too? And she dances just alone in her room with her record and the dog. And she, it says when the song ended, Nanea felt lighter. And to me, it's a very small moment, but I think that it's a way of, of kind of exploring or signaling, like how does the culture or the things that you consume in your life um, how can it be therapeutic to you? And I think, you know, she ends up being of service to others by realizing that her dog dancing can be therapeutic for servicemen when Tennessee writes a letter basically being like, being able to see your dog and like made me feel like I was back at home or whatever. But it's like, how do you sit with uncertainty and what can bring you comfort? I think that is like sort of the arc of the book that was most resonant with me at least.
0: We also, we lose Donna, right? We lose a friend, which is a very acute loss for this character because she's very close with her friends. And in her place, we get Dixie, right? We get this person who is kind of brought to the island, whereas Donna was taken away from the island because, you know, she and her part of her family were not considered essential We get Dixie, I think, in some ways to show how other families are struggling differently, right? That everyone is going through something. They are all kind of in like the same – they're on the same island, but everything is feeling a little bit different Something I like about Nenea is she is astonishingly self-aware. She wants Dixie to be involved because she feels bad not being nice to a new person. But she has a challenge, which is that whenever Dixie is asked to do something, it can be really hard for her to follow through because she's living with all of these younger relatives. And she says she wants to help. But every time she says she'll do something, she doesn't. I'm probably going to have to bake her cookies for the USO show. No, I'm sorry I asked her to join the helpers. This leads to a discussion about the fact that her mother is an actor who has essentially left the family. And we don't really get that full story. And mom is kind of, you know, for someone who would have lived through the occupation of Hawaii and married an American, she's real positive. Do you think it means she doesn't love Dixie anymore? Not at all. Nothing ever changes a mother's love for her child. Moving away must have been a tough decision. Uh, Oh, yeah. I kind of was like fascinated by that entire passage. I think it's partially a parent trying to like help a child make sense of a messy situation that she doesn't know a whole heck of a lot about. I appreciate like wanting to include Dixie. I think that's a great plot line. I think it's good to tell her like you have to give Dixie a chance. We need a book about Dixie's mom.
1: (sighs) I mean, like that movie, we need to talk about Dixie's mom. Like, what's going on? (laughs) It's like, okay, that was the bleakest part of that book for me, or this book, because I feel like in that moment, the mom was trying to do a completely normal thing of trying to comfort her daughter and sort of explain something that was probably like new information to Nenea, like mom's leave, question mark and instead i think in that moment it would have probably rung truer to me if the mom had just said come out some come out with some empathy for dixie like wow that must be right. really hard for dixie so like we're going to treat we're going to offer her like a lot of grace or compassion here because you know like everyone during this time she has a lot of challenges and she also has this other thing that's kind of not related to the war because basically it's like dixie's mom abandoned the family for hollywood And Dixie is really trying to struggle with that and believe that the mom still wants a relationship with her and she misses her. It's just weird for Nenea's mom to be like, oh, yeah, like her mom's still like 100% locked in. You know, like and maybe we don't know. We don't know enough about that character. But that was sort of like a weird aside that was extremely tragic to read.
0: Or mom is a radical and Kirby has decided that Dixie's mom is actually a metaphor for the old South. <laughs> and it's like the old South is never coming back. Like Hollywood is the future, the old South and like the way that white women held on to power yes. through owning black women and through bondage like that's not coming back like that's what the mom is trying to say but through Nanea's filters she's like uh like I'm going back she's to like, my records yeah
1: I almost wondered if we should call her unnamed character unnamed friend almost like the chicks we do a rebrand yes so like unnamed friend I also think was an interesting intervention in the book because it it presented a moment where Nanea can actually act out and I actually really liked that moment of the book so like Nanea gets jealous that she's no longer her teacher's favorite and that unnamed character is going to be the her favorite and because she's asked to collect money for the war bonds which is an important job and she ends up like ripping a poster that unnamed character makes because she's upset that Lily, who she considers a class artist, wasn't asked to do it. And she gets called out in the hall, which to me, I was like, this is chilling. Even as a 36-year-old woman, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I if know. a teacher I says, I can same. I see you outside? Like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm at a personal ground zero. I would be terrified. Has that ever happened to you, IRL, in school?
0: No, what I can remember with shocking clarity, I was part of a very dysfunctional okay. table in grade mm-hmm. three, and we did not meet a certain benchmark, and we had one of our stickers taken Ooh. off of our board. And when I can tell you, I can remember this. I have to say, too, like, I have visuals in this book, which is not something I was treated to last time. A lot of these characters are a shock. I mean,
1: I still don't have visuals, so I don't know what you're seeing.
0: First of all, dad is a redhead. <gasps> dad is a redhead. Mom is super cute. I love Lily. I love Tommy. I love that do whole family. we get family. the like character Uncle
1: portraits at the start? Okay. Yeah, I, don't have I any do. Of
0: that. So the first thing that you see when you flip open my book is this, which I thought was kind of something. So April 1942, we're probably celebrating the birthday of this main character. Honolulu, Hawaii. Yeah, we have a present. It's 1942, and everyone in Hawaii is doing their part to help the war effort. Nenea is happy when her ohana, her family, comes together to create special memories at the beach. It's like, we have a lot going on at beaches, and most of it's not positive, okay? Um, I flip the page. We have the parents. We have the brother, the sister, who, frankly, I have thought almost not a lick about, her aunt and her uh, grandparents, as well as Dixie and Mrs. Lynn, like, There's a lot of people here, and mom and dad are put in one portrait.
1: That's almost as dark as remember that time one of the Felicity books had the (laughs) horse at the center and like kicked off like an actual some human characters. That was bleak. This sounds like that. Where, yeah, I don't know what to make of that.
0: I do want to say something I really thought was artfully done in this book. David, who is a brother, right, to Nanea and Jean, who is Lily's brother, are the same age. So they are peers in the same way that Lily and Nanea are peers. And the fact that David desperately wants to enlist and can... And the fact that Gene, because he is regarded only as Japanese, is not allowed to do that, despite being an American. Mm. I thought that was really definitely done in this series. I thought that was like woven in very, very that well. That was a
1: very good echo or parallel storyline to kind of draw out some stark differences. I thought that was done really well. Um Yeah, I thought that was done well. I do think like her relationship with Hula is a really also like probably one of the best things in this whole series. Plus her relationship to Melee. It's like you can kind of see how a child is trying to navigate a traumatic situation by like just kind of unconsciously grasping at things that are meaningful to them or give them peace. And, you know, just the way that the war is like aging her beyond her years. And there's like a sadness that goes with that. And I thought that came out really well at her birthday party um on the beach. And the grandpa gives her a shell lay that is made with special special shells. Try saying that three times fast. And he <laughs> says to her, May it grant you a safe and peaceful journey through the rest of your life. But he says to her, like I gave your brother and sister their lays when they were 13 and you're getting it at 10 because Basically, like your life has already been crazier or like these times are crazy. And it's like that was a really moving moment or just like powerful. Like, yeah, she is being aged beyond her years here.
0: I was thinking about this book and the one kind of frame that I think is so essential to understanding this character, which is innocence. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is about a loss of innocence, but also... In some ways, and I, I thought, you know, am I really reading too much into this hula performance? Am I overthinking this or projecting something onto it? I think what's beautiful about these books is it is presented as something very innocent. Mm. Where I think this podcast is about adults reading children's books. We understand that as part of imperialism in places like Hawaii, there was sex sex tourism, right? And that that is not going to stop just because there is a war that is actually going to intensify. And the way that women who perform hula are talked about is not always with this kind of cultural appreciation, but this sense that they are objects, right? Like that they are there to be desired by service members. So it's so strange to me to see those adult men be written about as boys, which does a certain kind of work. and then to think of Nanea, who is an actual girl doing these performances, I am gonna think about that differently than if I had picked this up at age 10.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think we bring our own age and experience with us. So it's hard as people who are very aware of like the role of Hawaii and American, you know, imperialism and everything else to read this and not know or not think about that larger frame. You know, and I just kind of wonder, like, what does the rest of Nenea's life look like?
0: I wonder, 1988, right, Ronald Reagan is formally apologizing for Japanese internment. What if she's a Reagan supporter? Oh,
1: man. I can't. We've already done this with Molly, and it's like having to think about that with Nenea, too is hard. I mean, I think what's interesting about putting Reagan into this conversation and like an adult Nenea is like Reagan's whole thing. Well, one of his many things besides denying AIDS was um, being like, I'm proud to be an American, like bringing that back after so much disenchantment in the seventies with Watergate and Vietnam and everything else. But you know, is that something that would have resonated with Nenea as an adult? Would she have kind of been more alive to all that had been lost to Native Hawaiians because of the United States? Or would she see herself as an American who wanted to reclaim the pride she felt in her country that maybe, you know, really brings her back to World War II and the sacrifices that her family made? I think this book is really trying hard to thread that needle. Like, is she someone who identifies primarily as an American and patriotism is really important to her. And of course they make sacrifices for the United States, you know, or is she kind of at war with herself as an adult, maybe growing more into not just the culture of her native Hawaiian heritage, but also the politics, like the feeling of loss, the victimhood of imperialism, like who knows, you know?
0: But also thinking of the fact that her father is from the continental United right. States, right? Like he's from like the lower forty-eight. When you get to the end of this book, very much the same kind of messaging. And I think these books are more designed where they could hang by themselves. So I do have a more extensive peek into the past section, which I'm not sure if your version does. There's discussion of the fact that, like, again... This particular combination of like Hawaiian spirit and the need to become a certain kind of patriot for the war made Hawaiians specifically primed to be, you know, overly generous and it made them prime to sign up at astonishing rates for war service. The book series concludes the fact that the people of Hawaii had witnessed the war firsthand contributed to their dedicated support of America's troops. But the spirit of aloha and the deeply held belief in Kakua had much to do with their generosity and patriotism. So it's basically saying there was like a Hawaiian brand or Mm. flavor of the way that they were patriotic. And you see uh, enlisted people putting lays on the graves of soldiers who were part of the attack on Pearl Harbor. I think if you just go by this book, right, if you wanted to create a kind of Nenea canon, she is absolutely patriotic that her brother goes on to serve in the war in Korea, Mm. right? That this family continues to do that. And I see a major rift between her and Lily in adulthood with how they think about these years, because I think their lives are diverging in a very important way.
1: Yeah, because I mean, something that the book doesn't capture because we're just not with them long enough is like is her entire family headed for internment?
0: Exactly. And, you know, exactly. are they going
1: to lose the boat that funds their whole family permanently? Like, are they going to lose years of their lives to, inter- like, being in prison purely because of their heritage while being co- probably very aware that, like, no one of German heritage is being locked up for their potential threat to America? You know, I'm I'm with you. I think that that's going to be a major a shift in their friendship, Um But it would be interesting to know like how Nenea positions herself, like especially as she maybe professionally becomes a hula dancer and maybe the way that she can make the most money is by entertaining increasing numbers of American tourists who come especially after Hawaii becomes a state and there's way more push or PR to drive American tourism like, does that change her relationship to being an American, too? I don't know.
0: There's some lines in this book where it's essentially, and again, we think about these characters as like vessels for different beliefs. Nenea is in shock that anyone could think that Uncle Fudge would be disloyal, right? right. And, and it's sort of like put into your brain that she can't fathom why anyone would think that. And I think where that maybe does a disservice is we don't want characters in these books who are just sort of like spouting hateful things for the sake of it. But I think if you only read these books, it doesn't even make any sense why they're coming after Uncle Fudge other than the fact that, you know, it was a Japanese attack. And I think there have been so many books in these series that have put problematic ideas on the table without promoting them. Right. I think you're kind of left in her confused world of like, well, why would anyone think that of Uncle Fudge? And there's different ways to kind of introduce those ideas without reifying or affirming them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think at the start we were talking about kind of like your concern that like the nostalgia for the 90s may never cease or just like nostalgia in general. And I think in some ways the biggest piece of nostalgia behind these books is this nostalgia for a 90s vision of like multiculturalism, multiculturalism that flattens all difference. To me, in these books, there is no difference other than Uncle Fudge being taken.
0: Right. And again, it's so like, because we know the wider American Girl universe, like, so telling that in the same period that this is set, Molly, a girl who has never stepped foot in Hawaii, and depending on how her investments in life go and Mm. like how she chooses to spend it, may never go to Hawaii, feels totally comfortable putting on a hula costume. By the 1950s, you have the introduction of the hula hoop in the United States as a very popular toy. Just thinking about the way that like part of consuming histories of Hawaii is saying like, well, anyone can do this. And I really, really would have appreciated like different kinds of moments of friction around like who should be performing the hula in addition to the dog. Absolutely. (laughs) Like it's it's funny that the dog does it. I will say we chose to read this month, so we really kind of tripled up. Early Sunday Morning, The Pearl Harbor Diary oh of Amber God. Billows, which I think deals with this same topic very differently. But we are yeah. very much open, I think, to people's additional suggestions. We have read some histories of colonialism in Hawaii. We've heard varying feedback on the Dear America mm. that is set in kind of like the cusp of the imperial era with U.S. You know, occupation of the island. I'd be so curious. Like, I would love to read a contemporary book with an indigenous Hawaiian character or historical book. I just don't have those at my disposal. I don't know what they are.
1: Yeah. Or is there like a Hawaiian historian or activist who maybe wants to talk to us about like hula as like a storytelling mechanism that is, you know, centering hawaiian experience in a way that these other books which are often written by white people don't like you know we're very open here i think that's what would have been cool in this book too is kind of like they talk about hula as a storytelling practice within their culture so in a way like her doing it in the midst of like an american military hospital could be read as like a moment of like an activist moment like she is telling her history and her story in her way in this American space. But she doesn't, you know, she's a child. She's not understanding it that way. But it made me think, like, I went and watched some hula competition videos. And it is so beautiful. And the singing and, like, the commentators of the one I was watching kind of explain the story that's being told so you can understand it. And as you said earlier, like, they all are about Hawaiian independence and, like, the sadness of imperialism. And it's such a beautiful art form That would be great to kind of bring that lens in like a native Hawaiian lens into this otherwise pretty white history.
0: I also want to recommend a pretty recent documentary called Manzanar Diverted, When Water Becomes Dust, which is about the way the landscape uh, that becomes the concentration camp at Manzanar was altered in the years leading up to it and why it's perceived as a desert today. It's an environmental documentary primarily, but it also includes a lot about the formation of a national monument at Manzanar and that kind of morphing into a national park and why that occurred and tensions between different indigenous populations and Japanese American populations. And I really, really recommend it. I think it does a good job of looking at the legacies of the land that internment and concentration camps sit on and how to talk about those today. I will just say they refer to Manzanar exclusively as a concentration camp, mm. which I know is something that people have you know, discourse about, but that is the way that they choose to frame it, not as internment.
1: That sounds, I just wrote the title down. Where can I watch that? Where is it?
0: So it's a PBS production. I was watching it as part of a screening, but there are different ways to access it. And I really recommend it. The Manzanar site and a few other sites, including Minidanka, that are run by the National Park Service. Minidanka has an award-winning junior ranger book, which probably sounds really strange, but it was created with a wide community of people. And it's won a lot of awards for being a really social justice-informed program for young people. Mm. So don't think of it so much as like a typical booklet. It's a very, very well done product fully online.
1: Okay. All right. I'm definitely going to check all of this out. And I was told you before I heard somebody told me George Sakai's um, graphic memoir about his experience as a child in a concentration camp or internment camp was really powerful. So I want to read that as well. So let us know what we should be reading or watching. And we're always looking to take your feedback, especially for the Patreon. So and maybe here on the main feed. Um, so, Allison, if people do want to get in touch, where can they find you and find the show?
0: I'm at Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find the show at Dolls Lives Pod and Dolls of Our Lives Podcast on platforms, including Instagram. Mary, where should people find you? They can find me on Instagram at
1: Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney one, two, three. And I look forward to hearing from everyone. Apologies in advance if it takes me a minute to get back to you, but I always do. And I love hearing from everyone and also our Patreon community. Please join us there. We have such a great time. We just had another PowerPoint party, which was very fun. We're planning some more and some watch alongs and various things. So check us out and we'll see you on our next episode.